Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. I think we've made a major contribution to Florida history and hopefully have inspired other ethnic groups to do the same. We'll discuss the papers of Civil War-era Governor John Milton. And it was Milton who read the Declaration of Secession to crowds at the uh, state capitol in January of 1861. And talk about the turpentine industry. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Conversos, Jews who publicly converted to Christianity under the threat of the Spanish Inquisition, probably came to Florida in the 1500s and continued practicing their religion secretly. Spanish records list people with Sephardic Jewish names among the first settlers of St. Augustine. Jewish people could not legally live in Florida until 1763, which is when Alexander Solomon, Joseph de Palacios, and Samuel Israel immigrated to Pensacola. This fascinating history and much more is preserved at the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. Long before the museum came into existence, founding executive director Marsha Jo Zervetz began a quest to collect and document Jewish history throughout Florida. I moved to Florida in 1960 and always been involved in the organized Jewish community and was rather horrified that there was no documentation of Jewish history in Florida. I couldn't understand that. I was involved nationally and everywhere I traveled I would meet with other women and we talked about why we were involved and they were involved because their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts, somebody in the family had been involved and I'm thinking, the Jews in Florida are really bereft of a history. There has to be something. We talk about Jewish continuity. How can you have continuity if you don't have a past? So I started asking a lot of questions, because I tend to do that. And uh, to my horror, no one had ever researched or documented it at all. The scholars up east uh, considered Florida not important for Florida Jewish history. They assumed it began on Miami Beach after World War II, and that was the beginning and the end. So I said, no, 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 there's got to be more to it. So I actually started a fabulous personal adventure that I think has benefited the entire state, not just the Jewish community, but the totally multi-ethnic community that we have, because the story that we are telling is of the immigrant experience. And I think some people tend to forget that all of us are of immigrant stock of some generation. Someone came from another place to America and to Florida. So I started an eight-year adventure. I traveled around the state, starting with Pensacola to Key West, and a lot of people don't realize that's a 1,000 miles. We're a very long state. And I met with people in each community, volunteers, lay, lay people, and I said, we need to research and document the history, the Jewish history of your community. And people would constantly say, oh, there's no history here. And I said, well, whatever it is, we want to retrieve it. Saravitz organized teams of volunteers in 13 Jewish communities around the state, including Pensacola, Tallahassee, Jackson, 
Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, and Key West. She learned how to conduct interviews from oral historian Samuel Proctor at the University of Florida. For eight years, Zarevitz and her team of volunteers collected stories, photographs, and artifacts. Zarevitz then assembled a team of professionals to help her create a touring exhibition called Mosaic, Jewish Life in Florida. After opening at the Historical Museum of Southern Florida in Miami in October 1990, the Mosaic exhibit traveled to venues including the Flagler Museum in St. Augustine, the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, and the T.T. Wentworth Museum in Pensacola, introducing audiences to Florida's Jewish history. We did not even know at the time that Jews could not live in Florida for 250 years after Florida was discovered. Only Catholics could live here from the time Ponce de Leon discovered Florida in 1513 until after the French-Indian War when the Treaty of Paris was signed in Paris, France in November of, or December of 1762. That was when Florida was traded from the Spanish to the British, and the British, desperate for settlement, allowed anyone to settle, including Jews. So it so happens that that same treaty gave Louisiana, took it away from the French and gave it to the Spanish. So Jews who were living in New Orleans, for example, had to leave because Jews could not live anywhere in the world under Spanish rule. And three of them went to Pensacola, Florida in 1763. So that was the beginning of documented Jewish life in Florida. We also found out that Florida was brought into statehood in 1845, the 27th state, by David Levi-Uli, a Jew, the first person of Jewish ancestry to even serve in the United States Congress. But who knew? So we have had more than 250 Jewish mayors. In other words, we have contributed, we as a Jewish community, have contributed greatly to every area of development of Florida, but nobody knew the stories. So this exhibit became very popular. And people along the way would say, you know, you've been wandering Jews long enough. People knew, even non-Jewish people know the term wandering Jews. So they said, you need to find a permanent home. Obviously, everything that you've collected, and I had collected about 6,000 photos and documents and artifacts, wasn't everything. So they said, you need a home. In the mid-1990s, the Jewish Museum of Florida found a home in what had been Miami Beach's first synagogue in 1929 and an Orthodox synagogue next door built in 1936. Marsha Josarevitz led the restoration of the buildings in 1993. We're sitting now in a 1936 Art Deco designed by Henry Hohauser, the most prominent of the Art Deco architects, designed this building in 1936 as the second synagogue for the first Jewish congregation on Miami Beach that started in 1929 in the building which we now own next door. But we started in this primary building, the 80 stained glass windows, a Moorish copper dome, a sloping floor. Had a lot of challenges because how do you create a museum with a sloping floor and stained glass windows all over? But we were able to do it and uh, we opened, we raised the money. The building was about to be torn down, I should mention. The buildings are both on the National Register of Historic Places, but our city was letting them being torn down. So I went to the city immediately to get a moratorium against tearing them down. I said, give me six months to see if I can raise the money. So we did raise the money, and we restored this building. And we opened in 1995 and were extremely successful in telling the story of the immigrant experience being focused on the Jewish story, but the acculturation process of everyone's family. The exhibition Mosaic, Jewish Life in Florida, makes up the core of the Jewish Museum of Florida. A timeline at the front of the museum places Florida's Jewish history in a national and international context. Documents, photographs, and artifacts are displayed, including the watch belonging to George Delinsky of Jacksonville. 
who is the first known Jewish boy born in Florida in 1857. Now, there are several reasons why I like that watch. First of all, on, on the back, it has a, a raise, it has a relief of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. It's a beautiful artifact. And the, the numerals, the, the, the hours are in, in Yiddish, Hebrew letters, Hebrew Yiddish letters. But uh, the significance of the fact that the first known Jewish boy born in Florida was so proud of his Jewish heritage that he carried this watch his whole life, and that it speaks loudly to the fact that, yes, Jews were here that early. He wasn't the first child that we know of born in Florida. There was a Jewish girl born in Pensacola, you know, Virginia Myers, in 1822, but we don't have anything of her. We have a picture of George, and we have this artifact. And, of course, everything that we have here, and we now have over 100,000 items in our collection, but everything has a story, even how I got it. When I went to Jacksonville repeatedly to, um, to document the story of the Delinsky family, which, as far as I still know, after 25 years of doing this, is still the earliest known continuous Jewish family in Florida, the Delinsky family in Jacksonville. And I would talk to different members of the family because different people tell you different versions of the story, and you have to kind of put it all together and see what's the correct one. And when I met with one of the members of the family, she told me about this watch that she had locked away in a safety deposit vault in a bank that no one in the family knew about. So I was able to convince her to loan it to us first for the traveling exhibit, and then when we became a museum, to convince all these people to donate these things to the museum for our permanent collection. And of course, members of the family that continue to come here, we had one as recently as last week from Chicago, are so shocked that they never knew about this. Of course, they're very proud that now everybody knows the story, but uh, to, to think that this was in the family and they didn't know about, they're a bit miffed. While the mosaic exhibition is permanent, rotating displays exploring other themes of Jewish life in Florida change frequently. Marsha Josarevitz. We expand on those themes from the core. So one of those happens to be the military. So right now you will see in the center of the hall a fabulous, extensive exhibit on Florida Jews in the military that starts with the Seminole Wars in 1833. For example, Fort Myers, Florida is named for a Jew, Abraham Myers, who was a West Point graduate in 1833, was sent to Florida to fight in the Seminole Wars and did such a good job servicing the fort as a quartermaster that they named the fort for him and therefore the city became the city of Fort Myers. So of course it brings it up to the current days. In addition to collecting Jewish history in Florida, creating the Mosaic Exhibition, and establishing the Jewish Museum of Florida, Marsha Josarevitz is author of the book Jews of Greater Miami. She also co-wrote the Florida Jewish Heritage Trail, published by the Florida Department of State, which identifies 250 sites of historic significance. One of the criteria is that the state imposes that the sites still have to be in existence. So that limited us a lot. I, my, say us, my co-author was Rachel Heimovics of Orlando. We had worked together when I lived in Orlando in many, on many projects. Um, I guess uh, if I have to think of a community that is just so interesting that people don't think about it, it's Ocala. Because Ocala was, there were phosphate mines there in the early days. That's where troop trains for the Spanish-American War went through there to take troops to Tampa to sail to Cuba. Uh, there's so much early history there. And there was a really, proportionate to the size of the population, a very large Jewish community there. Uh, that We've had mayors, we've had school superintendents, uh, the houses of many of these people are still there. We had a state legislator, for example, Marcus Frank, who was on the city council for 40 years in Ocala, went on to become a legislator. Uh, we have, and those families still live in Florida today. As a matter of fact, to connect it 
one of the descendants of one of those early Ocala families uh, was unfortunately one of those who was killed in uh, Iraq in the, in the current wars. So we come full cycle. The family has been in Florida for more than 100 years, and then to have a descendant killed in the Iraq War. Uh, but Ocala has a fascinating Jewish history, as does Pensacola, uh, as does Tallahassee and Jacksonville, all the, the northern uh, Jewish communities, uh, and Key West because Key West was an unblockaded port during the Civil War. And a lot of people forget that immigrants could come directly into Florida, into Jacksonville, and into Key West because they were ports. Uh, so many people think that everyone came through Ellis Island. Well, Ellis Island wasn't even in existence when many of these people were already coming to other ports in America. So um, I, I like to talk about the immigration uh, from specifically uh, Hush, Romania, that came into Key West, and from a place called Pushalatus, Lithuania, that came into Jacksonville. Very many, you know, it was called chain migration. One would come, for example, a big name in Miami is Wolfson. Uh, Mitchell Wolfson uh, created the first television station in the state. Uh, the uh, Wemetco Theaters, which is the Wolfson Meyer Theater Company, the Sequarium. Uh, he's the biggest f founder of Miami-Dade College, which, as I understand, has the largest endowment of any community college in the nation. Uh, his son was the first Jewish mayor of Miami Beach, which is also part of the military exhibit because he went to fight in World War II. Um, so the Wolfson family is an example of a family that came into Key West by 1884 because it was a shipwreck of one of the relatives. He ended up in Key West, and he went in and found a thriving Jewish community and said, hey, you know, to the rest of his family, this is a good place to live as a Jew. And, of course, that family eventually migrated up to Miami and has had a major impact here. And he married uh, Mitchell Wolfson, married someone from Pensacola whose grandfather had been the first Jewish judge in 1850, was a federal judge in Florida. So here where you have emerging of a Pensacola and Key West family uh, that I just think is fascinating. And who would have known these stories if we hadn't done all this research with all these volunteer grassroots people all over the state? So I think we've made a major contribution to Florida history and hopefully have inspired other ethnic groups to do the same. With so many immigrants in our state, the Jewish Museum of Florida serves as an inspiration to everyone. The museum demonstrates the importance of documenting individual, family, and community histories. We have children in our public schools here in Miami-Dade County from 155 different nations. In Miami Beach High School alone, we have children from 64 countries that speak 31 languages. Huge challenge for teachers. But the point here is that, again, that everyone is an immigrant and that each person needs to have the pride of knowing that they're part of America and part of Florida, not to be treated as you know, a second-class citizen. The, the students that come here for field trips ranked us number one in the whole county as their favorite field trip because when they come here, they feel at home because we talk about the immigrant experience. And we do, we facilitate discussions with them about where did their families come from and why and what did they bring with them and what traditions did they bring that they had to acculturate to a new society. So, as again, it's, it's a generic story, and that's why I think it's so important. And as you can tell, I feel very passionate about what we do. Marsha Joserovitz is founding executive director of the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. <laughs> Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. You can shop for great books on Florida history and culture at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, you can become a member of the Florida Historical Society or purchase a gift membership for someone else. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at the papers of Civil War-era Governor John Milton. Yeah, that's right. And John Milton was the fifth governor of the state of Florida. He was elected in 1860 and served from 1861 until 1865. So he carried the state of Florida through the Civil War, of which Florida was a member of the Confederate states. Florida seceded, as you know, in, in January of 1861. And it was Milton who read the Declaration of Secession to crowds at the uh, state capitol in January of 1861. But Milton is not a native Floridian. He was actually born in Louisville, Georgia. Uh, He didn't move to Florida until about 1845. He had moved around, spent some time in Alabama, uh, also lived in New Orleans for a while. He was uh, engaged as as a lawyer for a number of years before he moved to Florida and started a large cotton plantation uh, near present-day Mariana, Georgia, uh, near near the border, the northern border. Uh, at a, in fact, before the beginning of the Civil War, he was one of the largest landowners in the state, and he had almost 100 slaves uh, and, again, was engaged in the, uh, in the cotton trade. Now, these documents had a long journey to get here to the Library of Florida History. That's right. I'd mentioned that uh, Governor Milton served uh, in the office of governor until 1865, uh, and he was uh, he actually shot himself while in office in April of 1865. Uh, in fact, he's quoted as saying he preferred death to reunion when he knew the Confederate cause was essentially over. Uh, he shot himself at his plantation near Mariana, and his documents then uh, were left to his family members. Now, Milton had 13 children. Uh, and a number of grandchildren who were still alive uh, before he had passed away. Um, It was actually his grandson, a gentleman by the name of William Hall Milton, who acquired uh, a group of documents that we're looking at today, his letter book. Now, the letter book is an official copy of all correspondence that would have left the governor's office or been received by the governor's office, so a secretary would have kept all these letters. So it's a really great way to chronicle how the governor is reacting to these different events. Uh, So his grandson acquired the papers, uh, held on to them until about 1912 when his home was engulfed in flames. Um, And the, the documents luckily survived that fire. Uh, but what happened is that the uh, his grandson decided to split up the uh, the letter book, the journal. So what we're looking at is uh, really the first part of the journal. It dates from about 1861 to mid-1863. And that was given to the Florida Historical Society in the 1930s. Of course, the Florida Historical Society has traveled around the state until we found our new home here in Cocoa. Uh, but the second half of the journal stayed with the state library, which is in Tallahassee, that later became the State Archives of Florida, located in Tallahassee. Now, the the Milton's letter book that we're that we're looking at here is, is as you say, clearly uh, worse for wear. There's uh, burned edges around each of the letters. What what is some of the content of the letters we're looking at? 
Well, again, this is a great cross uh, section of all of the correspondence that would have come and gone from the governor's office. And uh, some of the letters are, are quite mundane. They talk about military affairs because at this time the governor was heavily involved in what was happening with his uh, troops that left Florida and were fighting in other campaigns. But there was a lot of uh, uh, correspondence back and forth about uh, events that were happening within the state. And here is one of the more, uh, I found, interesting letters dated June 20th, 1862. And it's written by uh, Governor Milton to the commanding general of Confederate forces in Florida. And here he's asking for the general to um, allocate some troops to the effort of destroying illegal distilleries throughout Florida. So he found that to be a problem that there were essentially moonshiners operating in the countryside uh, that were... uh, uh, he felt were becoming a detriment to the uh, to the people of the state. You have some other of Milton's papers here, other than the uh, letter book. Yeah, that's right. So the letter book again chronicles uh, what would have come and gone from the office, and they were uh, essentially copies. So they're not the original letters that would have been sent and received from the office. But along with that donation from Milton's grandson, we did get a number of letters that were official letters sent to his office. What we're looking at here is an original telegraph that was sent from Richmond, Virginia in November of 1861. And it's from the uh, commanding general of uh, Florida forces that were in Virginia at the time, uh, telling the governor that the uh, regiments of Florida soldiers, infantry soldiers, had successfully made it to Richmond, but he's asking for more. And he said that the Confederate government is requesting for more soldiers. The other letter that we have here is from a surgeon who was fighting with the 2nd Florida Infantry about a year after that telegraph was sent. And this is during uh, a time that we call the Peninsula Campaign. So the Union was attacking the Confederate capital at Richmond. And here the surgeon is giving a a very somber letter uh, listing all of the officers who were killed in battle. And here he uh, mentions that of the 11 officers in this particular regiment, 10 of whom were killed in this particular battle uh, in June of 1862. At the very end of the letter, the postscript says, I would be pleased to hear from uh, about the affairs of our own state. So here he is asking the governor to just give a little uh, information about what's happening back in Florida. Interesting. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The turpentine industry was big in Florida in the early 20th century. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Turpentine is a clear liquid, and it comes from the steam from the pine gum that's being cooked. Rosin is like the gook that remains at the bottom of the still after the pine gum has been cooked. And rosin was actually used to caulk um, wooden ships and to coat the ropes and things like that. And that's where the name naval store comes from. Sometimes you'll hear the turpentine industry referred to as the naval store industry. That was Barbara Hines. She's the North Central Regional Director for the Florida Public Archaeology Network. I spoke with Ms. Hines about the turpentine industry in Florida. Here, she tells me of the many uses of what must have been thought to be a miracle product. It didn't really pick up in Florida until the late 1800s. 
but by the 1850s, rosins and spirits of turpentine and turpentine products were being shipped to almost every country in the world from the southeastern United States. And you find early products that contain turpentine, they range from Vicks VapoRub, <laughs> cleaning products, um, medicine. I hear a lot of people would use it, you know, on wounds. Um, people use it to clean windows and floors. Of course, now we know that turpentine has detrimental effects on human health, and so there's... And, People still use it, but there's safety guidelines for handling it that probably were not in place in the late 18, early 1900s. The item most associated with turpentine was the hurdy cup. Hurdy cups would dot the pine trees throughout North Florida during the turpentine boom of the early 20th century. With the hurdy cup, Floridians witnessed a transformation of the industry. Ms. Hines tells us about its origin and impact on the production of turpentine. The Hurdy Cup was invented by uh, somebody named Dr. Charles Holmes Hurdy, and he was a scientist. He worked as a chemistry professor at the University of Georgia. He had done a lot of research on the turpentining industry, and he found that it was very wasteful. They were wasting a lot of the gum that was collected from these trees. Before that, they sometimes would use, they would cut boxes into the tree. They would actually take an axe to the, to the tree and cut a hole at the base of it to collect the rosin. And then they would take a what they called a dipper, which was a tool that they would use to take the rosin out of that box and put it in a bucket. So a lot of it got wasted as they were transferring it from. And so he came up with the hurdy cup, which is essentially it's a clay cup. They would nail it to the tree, and they had metal gutters that were just these little pieces of metal that would stick to the tree on either side of the hurdy cup to guide the rosin down the tree and into the cup. And this was the hurdy cup was invented in, I believe, 1902. You'll see different types of them, but the typical hurdy cup is kind of an orange color, and it looks almost like a terracotta flower pot. By the middle of the 20th century, other products emerged on the market, as well as the introduction of new synthetic chemicals. Here, Ms. Hines tells us about this. There were other products that were quickly becoming available. Tall oil was one of them, and it's a byproduct of pulping. Um, and by the 1970s, it exceeded distilled rosin uh, in production. It was cheaper. It had more stable prices. There was also the issue of the fact that after World War II, we really didn't make wooden ships anymore. So the rosin industry had a steep decline. You had metal ships. There was no need for rosin. Um, there was a shortage of workers because of the low pay. And by the 1960s, there were only about 3,300 recorded turpentine workers in Florida. As compared to 10 years prior, there was about 21,000 workers. So it was a very quick decline. Barbara Hines leaves us with her final thoughts on the legacy of turpentine in Florida. Well, I think it was uh, very important. A lot of our small towns in Florida, in the more rural areas, they were created as turpentine camps, essentially. There are many towns along railroads that probably wouldn't exist if it weren't for the turpentine and lumbering industries. I interviewed Barbara Hines and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. 
look for it on iTunes. That was Barbara Hines, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.